Good morning. How are we? You're not depressed because we're praying, right? Some Christians, you say, hey, let's pray, and all of a sudden the joy gets sucked out of the room. Sometimes we come to the week of prayer and we say, hey, let's talk about prayer. Some of you like tense up. You're like a man walking into church on Father's Day. Mother's Day, we give roses and hugs. Father's Day, we throw punches. You ever been a dad on Father's Day in a church? You bear the brunt of all the father's sins in the world. Sometimes as a church, you come to a week of prayer, and we ask the question from the stage, how many of you pray enough? And everybody's like, not me. I don't pray enough. And you expect there to be like, oh, you of little faith. And I want you to know that's not our game today. Our game today is to come to talk about prayer and to talk about the possibility that exists when you come to God, when you go to God. I have every intention today of you walking out of this place, not beat up, but encouraged. Amen? I have every intention today of God's word inspiring our hearts towards more fervent prayer, yes, but more gracious prayer all the more. It's happened recently in my office over the past couple of months. I'm getting older. The beard is helping. People I notice don't say to me often, you're too young to be the pastor. I plucked out a gray hair today, guys. And um, I know. Oh, someone that hurt them. Uh, but I, I've been meeting with a lot more people in counseling. And in these moments, people come to my office, and I sit down with them, and they'll sit in front of me. Joe and Susie, they're having a problem. I can fix it, apparently. And they sit down. I say, well, let's pray. And I like to surprise people. Maybe you've been one of these people I've surprised. I look at Joe, and I say, Joe, why don't you pray? And more often than not, lately, here's what's happened. Joe looks at me like, You're the pastor. And, and I've heard this a couple times lately. Joe, Joe says to me, Pastor, uh, that's the first time anybody's ever asked me to pray out loud. I don't know if I have the words. And I, I kind of love that attitude. That's not a thing to be ashamed of. That's awesome. I'm glad that you can, like, say that. But um, I look at them and I say, well, great, Joe. I don't have a fast track to God any more than you do. Why don't you pray? And Joe looks back at me, this time with squinty eyes of incredulity. Is that the word? You can't spell it either, so it's fine. Incredulously, and he looks at me, and, and here's what it means. He's looking at me going, you have a master's degree in prayer. You do two things, show up on Sunday and pray for people. Pastor, don't be so lazy. Do your job. You pray. And I, the wise old sage that I am now, look back at Joe. And I say, Joe, I'm not going anywhere. You can pray. Just a sentence. And it's these prayers, these prayers that are the most precious things to me in ministry. When a guy who's never talked to the almighty God, his creator of the universe, 
is finally forced to confront him in words and to express the longing of his heart and to acknowledge that I don't have enough to fix my surroundings, but God, I think maybe you do. Would you help? There is a sweetness to that moment. But it's not a natural moment. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, part of the learning curve of discipleship is learning how to pray. You don't enter this world a good prayer. You have to learn how to pray. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where I'm going to just focus us in like a laser today. Luke 11. Jesus has been out praying, and, and, and I'll just read to you verse 1. Here's how it starts. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said, okay, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Maybe uh, this is a shorter version of what we call the Lord's Prayer than what you're familiar with. Uh, the church uh, history has more quickly grasped on to Matthew's version of this prayer, which is a little bit longer. Maybe when you were growing up at Mass, uh, you learned that version. Or in Awana, you learned Matthew's version. It had a couple more words in it. It really should be called the Disciples' Prayer because this is a prayer that God wants us to pray out. What a beautiful prayer it is. We could spend the whole morning on Luke 11, 1 through 4. That would be worthy of our time. Father in heaven, God is our Father. He is hallowed. His kingdom come. And three asks, God, give us our provisions, give us our forgiveness, and protect us. But it's not to this that I want to look today. I want to look at exactly what comes after this in Luke's account of what Jesus teaches next. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 5, that I think really teaches us the most on prayer. Y'all with me? Let's read it together. I hope you're not discouraged that I'm skipping the Lord's Prayer as if it's some dishonorable thing. But here's what Jesus says. Check this out. He says, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he isn't a friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Everybody say whatever. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, at first glance, you might be like, I see prayer in Luke 11, 1 through 4. What is he talking about with this friend and this midnight thing and giving him an impudence? What is this? And I think if we dig into this and unpack it for a moment, this, these four verses actually teach us Everything we need to know about how to pray, God, your will be done. It's an interesting situation. Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he's teaching them, and he says to them a hypothetical question. He asks them, he says, um, almost like, a, hey, can you guys believe this? Which one of you would ever expect this type of response to this situation? A friend comes over late at night, and you don't have anything to give to him. So you uh, welcome him in, but in the middle of the night, you leave to go to your neighbor's house because you don't have any bread, and you ask your neighbor for some bread. Could you imagine getting this response from inside? Go away. My door's locked. My kids are sleeping. I don't want to help you. 
That's really what Jesus is saying. It's awkward in our English, but that's really the essence of it. And it's a setup. If it feels like it's a setup, that's because it's a setup. The obvious answer that Jesus is trying to elicit from his disciples of, like, hey, can you imagine getting this type of response is obviously, okay, so like 7% of you figured that out. You're like, why was it obvious for them and not for me? Um, well, I, maybe we, a little bit of cultural context will help us. Um, we live in a very individualized society where we've been taught from a very young age to sort of go from your garage, which is attached to your house, into your car, to the parking garage, and never see people, and never walk the dog and stop, and to be suspicious of your neighbors. Mayberry is a long way away, isn't it? We're a people where neighbors uh, is really just the people you're forced to deal with. In my neighborhood, we have this app. I don't know, maybe some of you guys have this app. It's called Nextdoor. Do you have that Nextdoor app? Some of you are like, yes. It's like Facebook for neighbors. All my whole neighborhood were on it. And I think it was designed to be this like helpful, neighborly way to introduce yourself to the neighbors and get together. What it's become is just a cesspool of all things awful. In my neighborhood, people post to this next door app every hour. You're probably getting an alert right now. Some kid is wandering around the neighborhood. He was captured on a ring video camera. And they posted that video all to the neighbors, publicly shaming the parents of this kid. It's 20 degrees outside. Where's his coat? You parents ought to be ashamed of yourselves. This is my neighborhood, okay? People post on there, my cat is missing. Has anybody seen them? My dog is missing. Has anybody seen them? And um, like every week this happens. Like somebody's dog wanders into our yard. We're like, hey, anybody lost their dog? The picture goes up. It's a cute little pup. In the comments below, it's like, yeah, that dog deserves to be lost because that neighbor's a jerk. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Come move into my neighborhood. I kid you not, you guys, a week ago, a pit bull got out of its house. And the picture said, sweetest dog ever. I promise. But she's lost and got out. And two comments stuck out to me. Someone underneath it said, um, you know, well, maybe if you didn't leave the door open, you'd be a better dog owner. The second comment, and this is true, the second comment was just a link to the Humane Society saying, hey, maybe they'll put your dog down for you. I know. I know. I'm not celebrating this. I'm just telling you, this is what it's like to be a neighbor in 2019, Okay. The whole premise of this next door app was to be helpful. The whole reality is that it's turned into this vehicle of public shaming. And you know the effect it's had on me? Your neighborly pastor? You better darn well be sure I'm pulling my trash cans in right after that garbage truck goes by, lest I be publicly humiliated. And goodness knows my kids go outside with full gear. They look at the road from their windows and they see if cars are going by. They have been trained because, God forbid, we be shamed in our neighborhood. 
And now you get a little bit of the picture of what Jesus was talking to. Because in Jesus' context, when he says to his disciples, could you imagine having a friend come over and putting them up and then not having enough food and going to your neighbor and saying to them, neighbor, I don't have enough for my friend who has just come. Will you help me out? And you get the response of, no, go away. Could you imagine that happening? The answer was no, because Jesus was living in an Eastern society with this idea of shame and honor. It was very much a shame and honor system. One of those cultural norms of the Eastern world, this Eastern mindset, that was just baked into the mundane rhythms of life, was the practice of hospitality. Hospitality today gets confused with hosting. If you're the type of person who has people over to your house to make dinner for your guests, maybe you clean your house. I hope you do. Uh, maybe you put out flowers, make the table look all Martha Stewart E. But that's not hospitality. That's hosting. That's hostessing. Because true biblical hospitality is to open your home, to open your lives, and to put people up overnight. In, in Jesus' day, uh, to host someone in your home was to make them the guest of honor. They were the ones who were in charge of the bank account. They were the ones who were in charge of the meal plan. They were the one who got the best seat at the table. There was no such thing as dad's chair in the living room. Do you know what I'm saying? To be a hospitable person, it actually meant that you were expected to serve meals that would be far beyond your means of providing. Yes, you heard me right. You were requested and required in Jesus' day to outspend your means. Take that, Dave Ramsey. You would bless them. You would say to the person, you have honored my house by staying with me. And you would do whatever it took to make sure that this person received a better treatment that they knew you could afford. You think we have this, like, game of keeping up with the Joneses? It's ancient, y'all. But this was the world. Jesus saying to his disciples, can you imagine going to a neighbor asking for help to entertain a friend and getting that response? In a culture where how you treated your friends and your guests was the measure of your status, the answer was obviously no. Which brings us to verse 8. Jesus tells us in verses 5 through 7 what isn't going to happen. He's not going to say to you that, no, go away, my kids are in bed, the door is bolted. What lame excuses, right? Here's what's going to happen. Verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Yeah, Jesus says, friendship isn't strong enough to get this lazy guy out of his bed, but his impudence will. Impudence, impudence, I know. Nobody knows what it means. You're fine. It sounds like a word that Steve DeWitt made up, right? I'm a word nerd, and I had to look this up this week. It really means um, shamelessness, shamelessness. It doesn't mean persistence. It doesn't mean tenacity. It doesn't mean, it means shamelessness, particularly two forms of shamelessness. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word that we translated into Greek that we translated into English, and the best that we can kind of do is this word shamelessness, but it implies this idea of being righteous, of having no shame, but also this deep internal desire and conviction to do the things that would not cause us or the people around us shame. 
in our Western mind, it sounds very, like, um, works-based, but in the Eastern mind, it's very much shame-honor and very normal because of impudence, the shamelessness. So in one sense, Jesus is saying, if you have a visitor drop by late at night and puts you in a position of obligation and all the odds are against you. It's nighttime. It's past the time of socialization. All the food for the day is gone. And if you didn't prepare for company, tomorrow's food preparations are not enough. Add to that the fact that it's nighttime. All of your neighbors are asleep. Even if you did find someone who would talk to you, they're in bed. Their kids are asleep. He doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't even seem to like you. But because of his deep internal foundational desire to avoid shame, because of his impudence, this societal fabric, so to speak, he will get out of bed and give you not just three loaves of bread that you asked for, but whatever it is that he thinks that you need. Why? Because of his impudence. Because your neighbor is a man of integrity, and he will not violate that quality. He does not want to be publicly shamed on the Nextdoor app for refusing to uphold the community's legendary code of hospitality. No, he's going to give you whatever you ask. He's going to give you the bread and the meal and the platter and the silverware to go along with it so that the community's honor and his own honor might be upheld. This parable It's situated between two incredibly famous verses on prayer. To the top, we have the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 9 is this incredible poem that many of us have memorized. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door. You're like, why aren't you talking about that verse? That makes sense. Well, it's because Jesus is teaching right between these two epic teachings on prayer, his poems, is this parable. And this parable gets at the heart of prayer that God wants. How you go to God is important. Why you go to God is important. Luke, by situating this parable between the Lord's Prayer and the famous poem of Ask, Seek, Knock, he's showing that uh, these two Units work together with the third in the middle to argue from the lesser to the greater. To, to, to understand what Jesus is implying, we simply need to ratchet the parable up a little bit. He's essentially saying that if humans will go through great inconveniences to avoid compromising their integrity and their values, and then the God to whom you pray, also who has an integrity that he will not violate, can be sought in these matters too. Oh, and by the way, he's not some cranky neighbor He's your father who has unconditional love for you. In these moments when life has put you in an awkward position, in these moments when it's late at night and you don't have the answers for what to do next, but you know you have to do something, Jesus is teaching us, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Where do you go when you don't know where to go? How do you provide when you cannot? provide? How do you uphold when you cannot uphold? And he says, you would go to each other. Do you not know? You can always go to your God. We go to God. Go to God. 
I had to put a frame over all this, I would just say this is the, the theme today is go to God. And there's three factors, three external factors I want to walk through the next maybe 10 minutes as we bring this service towards its end. I think there's three external factors that Jesus is pushing us to consider from this parable that encourage us to go to God. I'm going to give them to you all from the beginning right here. If you take notes, that'd be great. If you don't take notes, I won't take it personally, but I kind of do, so it's fine. But I'll give you three, three thoughts on external factors that help us know why we go to God. First is this. We go to God for the sake of our friends. We go to God for the sake of our community. And we go to God for the sake of God. I want to just take those in order and just apply them to our lives, seeing how this parable plays itself out here at Bethel Church in your life in this week of prayer. We go to God first for the sake of our friends. Uh, since you're taking notes, by the way, you just put in the margin of your notes, James chapter 4, verse 3, and look it up later. I love this parable because it really messes with the selfishness that we all are prone to in our own prayer life. Do you know what I mean? This whole setup to the parable is not one of, oh, God, come help me, but one of selflessness on the person making the request. Jesus uh, breaks this down for us very easily. If we look at the beginning, Jesus shows it right away. He says, which one of you, which one of you who has a friend uh, will not go to him at midnight? He said to him, friend, lend me some loaves, for my friend has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. The whole setup is selflessness. They've, they've had a knock on their door late in the evening when the day was done. A long-lost friend needed respite. They left them in. The whole thing has created problems. How many people know when you try and do something good, it often brings about many, many problems? And they don't know what to do. They have the obligation of making a plan for the next day. It's been costing them sleep because now they got to wander around the neighborhood. They're losing money because this friend dropped by. They're obliged to call in favors from neighbors they don't even like. The way even that Jesus opens this parable, saying, I have nothing to set before my friend, shows us that at one level, this is a shamelessness going on here to protect this guy's own hosting or hostessing uh, value. But more than that, it's so profound, it shows... This guy's desire is to uh, provide a basic human service for his friend. He is spending his chips, so to speak, for the sake of his friend. At the end of the day, there is really very little personal gain for his hosting in this parable. And I really wonder today with what this hits for you. I'm curious how many people in here would say, I spend my chips in prayer on other people. Let me tell you a little bit about my, about my life. Um, I had a week. You ever have a week? Like, I had a week. Let me tell you about my week. Like, I don't, is this therapy now? Are you going to make me pray? I don't know. Um, I had a week uh, that was consumed with chaos. Um, I was getting sick. You can maybe even hear my voice. I'm coming out of it. But um, I accidentally sold my car this week. Yeah, I mean, it was for sale, but I didn't think it would sell. So I didn't line up another car. You guys, don't laugh. This was awful. Because I have a family that has lives, apparently. And people were in the hospital, and they're like, hey, Dan, can you come? But I was, like, sick, too. So not only was I, like, carless and at the mercy of my wife, 
But I was like hawking, nasty stuff. Come shake my hand afterwards. All day Tuesday, I'm thinking, God, I need a car. Would you help? I literally sold my car and walked to a car dealership. They said, well, sir, are you going to trade something in today? I said, no, I walked. They said, you, what? Yeah, I walked. You were the closest dealership. Can I take a test drive? I got 30 minutes to kill. This was Tuesday. I'm driving around in my minivan, you know, borrowing it from my wife on Wednesday and Thursday, and I'm going from place to place looking for cars. I even went on Facebook and was like, does anybody have a car? And you all were like, yes, yeah, $7 million for my junker. And thank you. Uh, but I appreciate that. And um, every day, every night, in the middle of the day, I'm praying. And here's my prayers. God, heal me. God, make me well. God, give me a car. God, help my life not hurt right now. God, where are you? God, I need you. And it was Thursday. It was Thursday. I was driving for lunch right over here on, on um, Willow Creek Road. And my phone buzzed, and at the stop sign, I promise you, I, seriously, I, I looked at my phone, and it was a friend of mine who was here in the first service, and the text just simply said, hey, man, I prayed for you today. Yeah. Normally, I'd be a little snarky, and I'd reply back, like, you pray good things? Or, gee, because sometimes I wonder if sometimes people, never mind. In that moment, when I caught my sarcastic nature coming up, the spirit was just cutting through Luke 11 for me, saying to me, Dan, you have been so wickedly self-obsessed with your own prayer request. A man welcomed a friend into his home in the middle of the night, and it put him out, and he went on behalf of his friend to somebody else to seek his good. Prayer is not to be selfish. Prayer is to be spent on others. Dan, don't you see it? This is the purpose. This guy is doing more like the man in the parable than you are, thinking that you're coming to me praying all the time, asking you for selfish things. This guy who's texting your phone saying, I prayed for you. He's the way that I want you to live. Can you get your eyes off yourself and pray for others? It all went through my mind between the yellow light and the red light at the stop sign. And it's so true because we're so, James 4 verse 3, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask with selfish motives to spend whatever you get on yourself. But prayer, when we go to God, we go to God for the sake of our friends. Jesus is telling his disciples, you want to be a real prayer warrior. You want to be someone who actually gets stuff done through heaven. Don't go for yourself. Go pointing a finger. Go asking God to bless somebody else's life because they need your prayers. We go to God for the sake of our friends. It reminds me that this was the ministry of Jesus. Our Lord, after he died on the cross and was buried, and hallelujah, rose from the dead, which Easter's coming, y'all. I promise you spring is coming and Easter's coming, and we're going to resurrect the life in Northwest Indiana. 
when he rose, he rose again. He went to heaven. And he's not taking a break, he's, uh, scriptures tell us, women, you're going to come to this in a couple of weeks in your Women of the Word study in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says this. It says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession, it literally means to stand in the middle of problems and power. To stand between the pain and the healer. To bring together problems and solutions at the hands of God. And friends, when we go to pray, we go to pray for our friends because they need help. It reminds me so much of this parable. Not that this man could have gotten anything out of it, but so that the needs of his friend might be met. Oh, don't we want to be a church like that? That can go and pray for one another. This week, during the week of prayer, this may be the first time in your life that you pray like Jesus. Where you pray for the needs of somebody else. And that's awesome. That's a good godly thing for us to be selfless in prayer, to ask God to move in the lives of other people, to, to shore up the needs that we ourselves can't provide. Second, we go to God for the sake of community. We go to God for the sake of our community. What, what I mean is that when we are known as a people of prayer, we are properly distinguished as the people of God. I'll say that again. When we're known as a people of prayer, we are properly distinguished as the people of God. We go to God for the sake of the honor of this community, for the sake of the honor of the church. It is a communal project. What was it that got that guy out of bed in the middle of the night when his kids were sleeping and his door was bolted? He didn't want to turn the light on to get his friend whatever he needed. He had planned ahead, but his friend didn't. What was it that got him out of his bed? It was a desire for the honor of the community. And the same thing is true of us. When we come together and we pray, we are honoring the church that Christ bought with his blood that he promises he is building. He says, I will build my church. It reminds me of that time when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that week right before he died. And remember what he saw? He saw people in the temple selling sacrifices, and they were exchanging doves and things like that. And remember what Jesus did? He went all like um, Liam Neeson on the place and like beat everybody up and punched the guys and kicked everything out. What does he say? He says, is it not written that my, my father's house shall be called a house of? Right, 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 right. We, we know it's prayer, but there's more to it. For all the nations. God's long intended purpose in his community, his distinguished community, the people of God, is that the nations would gather and the community would be honored. I, I would get into this a little bit more technically. I can talk to you later. But I don't believe that the thing that bothered Jesus in this moment in the temple was that people were exchanging money in the temple. That wasn't the problem. The problem was is that Jews could go wherever they wanted in the temple except for the Holy of Holies. Non-Jews had one place they could go, the court of the Gentiles. Where do you think the Jews decided to set up their shops for their most convenient transactions? They set it up in the court of the Gentiles. And as Jesus walks into the place where he's supposed to see the nations praying and the community honored, he sees people who have access to the whole temple pushing out and keeping away those who have been brought near by the testimony of the people of God. In his indignancy, he cries out, shame on you! really what he says. He says, you are causing 
my father's house to be disgraced. No, when we go to God, we go to God to honor his community. It honors God when we pray, and it honors the church when we pray. Have you ever been a part of a church that truly prays? We're hoping to build one here. But nobody says of that church, they're a disgrace to God. No. It's the churches who don't pray, who don't go to God who the world looks at and says they're a disgrace. May that not be said of us. Jesus is saying, hey, look, the reputation of the church is at stake. Will you help? Will you pray? Paul says this in Galatians 6, too. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this week, during our week of prayer, you get a chance to go to God and experience the distinction of being the people of God in prayer. And we do so because when we go to God, we go for the sake of God himself. That's the third thing. When we go to God, we go for the sake of God. Jesus in this parable is essentially giving us this command, hey, test God. See if he won't wake up in the middle of the night and provide abundantly more than you ever thought you needed. Come to God, give him a chance to open up the storehouses of heaven and rain heavenly blessings upon you. This is certainly the thrust of what Jesus says next in verses 9 through 13. He simply says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. There's a certainty that we come to prayer in. The host of the parable went to his neighbor because they knew the neighbor was a neighbor. It's like by definition, they were going to help. There was a code, an honor system that was at play. And when the opportunities to be a neighbor presented themselves, they brought honor upon the neighbor. The inverse of this is true. Jesus might have said, which of you who has a friend in from out of town but has nothing to serve them will choose not to ask their neighbor who could meet their need? To know that your neighbor has what you need and to not ask them is to dishonor them. And to know that your God has all that you need. And to not ask him is to dishonor him. We go to God for the sake of God. Not because he needs anything from us. But when we go to him, we are saying, I recognize you have it all. And I don't. When you go to God for the sake of God, you are giving him honor and glory and worth. When it feels like life has you surrounded and pinned down and hemmed in and you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from or how to fix the relationship that you're in or how to heal your family wounds, when you go to God and you say, God, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but I know that you know, you go and you say, God, for your glory and for your fame. It reminds me of the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms. The psalmist cries out something, something like this. Help us, O God, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. Why? Not for us, but for your name's sake. When we go to God, we acknowledge him for who he is, that it's his name and his glory that we're asking him to display. He's the provider and it honors him. And friends, we don't go to God just to make him do things for us. Amen? If, if you think that 
This is prayer, that God is your genie. You'll read the Old Testament all wonky. You'll see when Abraham, Moses, David, and a whole host of others, they call out to God and they, they ask God to relent or to show mercy or to provide. And then as you read it, you're like, well, what do you know? God did it. Like a genie, he did it. But to read those texts that way is a Western idea. It seems like we are the ones conjoling God, coercing him to move for us like a sleepy neighbor who's indifferent towards us, just giving into our requests. But if we see this from Jesus' point of view, God is the Father who actually delights in making his name famous on account of meeting the needs of his people when they ask. When we go to God in prayer, we do so recognizing that it's midnight in our souls, that we lack the sufficient needs, that we are bankrupt people. We have responsibilities to fulfill. We have honors to uphold. We cannot do it. But in God's name, in his power, in his might, he gives us what we need.